Dreaming of a better sleep? Tossing and turning is not your destiny. And Ollie is here to help. Ollie invites you to sink into sweet, sweet slumber to improve your mental and physical health and overall wellness. More than just melatonin, Ollie's ingredients help you unwind your mind for a delightfully dreamy drift off. Sleep is on the way at Ollie.com. That's O L L Y.com. All right. Hi, everyone. Welcome to today's episode of the Professional Book Nerds Podcast. This is Emma here. We have a very special guest today, Bridget Kemmer, here to talk about Defend the Dawn. Welcome. Hi. Thank you so much for having me. It is so wonderful to be here. I'm so excited to talk to you about the second book in the Defy the Night series, Defend the Dawn. This book is out September 20th. And I know it's always a little tricky to talk about sequels uh, because I feel like there are a lot of people that put series aside until they're finished. Mm -hmm. And so they don't want to read them. But for our listeners uh, that don't mind knowing what to expect, could you tell everyone a little bit about where we pick up in the story for Defend the Dawn? Sure. So, you know, with with for anybody who might not be familiar with Defy the Night, that is a story that is set in this kingdom of Kandala. It is a YA fantasy where we have two protagonists. We have Tessa Cade, who is an outlaw with her best friend, Weston. And they live in this kingdom that is ruled by King Harriston, um, who is kind of this, he is seen as kind of a vicious tyrant, um, and his younger brother, Prince Korik, who is basically the king's executioner. Um, and the reason they have to be so vicious is that the kingdom is overrun by this illness um, that causes a fever. And the only cure is by, you know, taking this elixir um, that can be created by drinking um, moonflower tea that is very, very expensive and hard to get. And you know, of course, because that happens, there's this underground trade, there's this black market, and Tessa and Weston, you know, kind of put on masks and dress as outlaws and steal medicine and distribute it to those who can't afford it. So it's got a little bit of a Robin Hood slant to it. Um, and one day, Weston, Tessa's best friend, doesn't return from a supply run, and Tessa sets off to find out what happens to him. Um, and that kind of ends up turning everything upside down in the story of Defy the Night. And Tessa discovers that she has to, you know, she wants to fix everything she thinks is wrong with her kingdom. She might need to start a revolution. But at the end of that book, at the end of that book, as we head into Defend the Dawn, um, we find that Tessa and Prince Korik are working together as allies. And, you know, they trying to keep it as spoiler-free as possible, they have a very complicated relationship, you know, because Prince Korik is seen as a very cruel person by the people of Kandala. Um, Tessa was seen as very much an ally of the people, and now people are a little wary of her because she's working with Prince Korik. People don't know, you know, who they can trust. Um, the, the book opens, you know, kind of with everyone sitting around the table, you know, talking about like, how are we going to get more medicine to the people? You know, is this a better plan? Is there going to be enough medicine? Um, 
And while they're having this meeting, somebody comes into the room and says, hey, this ship has sailed into the port and these people have arrived saying they are emissaries from a neighboring kingdom. And that just kind of throws everything into turmoil. It just changes the entire game because of what these emissaries bring and the offers that they have. Um, and it's just, it was so much fun to write. Yeah, that's so wonderful because I admittedly went into this book knowing what happened in the first one. I tend not to read too much of the description before I read a book, just because sometimes I like going into it with no information. And this, all of the things that happen in Defend the Dawn really sort of change things from where we left in Defy the Night, you know, which was maybe with some cautious peace a little bit. Um, and this really does kind of send things in a little bit different of a direction. So I'm curious what the inspiration was for, um, defy the night as the series, or even just um, where things kind of pivot to and defend the dawn. So defy the night. It's funny because the, the book came out kind of in the midst of a global pandemic. It came out last year, September of 2021. And because of the timing, a lot of people assume that the book was, you know, because it does, even though it's not a book about illness, um, a lot of people assume because the kingdom is overrun by this illness that it has, that it was inspired by the pandemic. And it wasn't. The, the, the entire first draft of the book was complete and sent off to my editor by the autumn, <clears throat> pardon me, of 2019. And the actual initial inspiration for the book I was trying to think of what I wanted my next fantasy to be. And I was scrolling through Facebook and um, a friend had shared a GoFundMe for a neighbor who was struggling to pay for cancer treatments. And I started thinking about, you know, the, just what are the obligations of the people in power to help people get access to medicine? Like what, you know, it was, just as always, especially now during the pandemic, you know, what, you know, what obligations do people have to, to provide for others? You know, what, is it the responsibility of neighbors to contribute to a GoFundMe? Is it the obligation of the government to help provide medicine? Um, You know, and obviously you can't answer these questions in a YA novel. Um, But I think one of the most amazing things about fantasy, especially when you're writing for teenagers and young adults is that you can take something that might seem a little dry and sterile and boring and kind of throw it on the page in a way that can make it seem a little bit more accessible and give people a lot to think about in a different way. Yeah. I think that that's really nicely conveyed in this series because you do a really great job at demonstrating that there are shades of gray to things. And like that Coric is not 100% the villain here, or that Mm -hmm. the rebels, you know, I'm thinking of Lachlan are not 100%, you know, holy and righteous in their mission, that there are shades of gray and that everybody is functioning from all of these different motivations. And it's, and ultimately everybody has the same goal, but certainly figuring out how to achieve those goals. There are a lot of different ways that they could go about it. I'm curious for this, and I don't know if this has been announced or not. There's got to be another book after this, right? So there hasn't been one announced, um, okay. but I'm very, it, is, it hasn't <laughs> been announced yet, but I, I'm okay. very hopeful that, that, that yes, we will be able to announce a third book in the series. 
Okay, great. I'm jumping the gun a little bit, but just knowing the adventures that Tessa and Coric uh, sort of encounter in this book for readers, there's got to be more. <laughs> and that said, Tessa and Coric's relationship is so realistic and authentic. They're both learning who the other is and sort of how they might fit together. Um, how do you write such authentic relationships? I mean, like Coric does make some comments in this book that had me a little swoony. Oh, yay. I am, um, you know, I, I just love writing about people. I love thinking about people and how people at their core are really just very messy, right? You know, I am, um, I'm just, I'm fascinated by how people fit together and the way different people think about things and how everyone brings something different to the table. You know, I, when I first started writing, my, you know, it would, it would fascinate me when my, my first books were published and how two people could read the same book and come away with just vastly different opinions. Um, and my husband made me this mug that said, um, you can only write the book. You can't tell people how to read it. And I think that's true about so many different things in life. Like just everybody, you know, when anybody comes to a different point, everybody's been raised in different ways. Everybody has different experiences. Everybody's carrying different bags. You know, everybody has different baggage. Um, and, and I just, I love looking at things through different lenses. And that's why I love, especially with, you know, Tessa and Coric are tackling the same issues from, you know, Coric is coming from a place of extreme privilege. You know, he's, he was raised as a prince. He was, you know, the King's brother. Um, but he is really trying to do the right thing, but it's what he thinks is the right thing to do. Whereas Tessa was, you know, raised not necessarily in poverty, but, you know, her parents were apothecaries and she's trying to do the right thing, but it's what she thinks is right because of the way she was raised. Um, and I think sometimes with social media right now, it's very easy to see a lot of different perspectives that are narrowed down to just very, you know, 30 second sound bites um, and not really be able to see the full picture. And I don't know, I realize it's a long, complicated answer to your question. No, but I think that's so true that people are really messy and that lends a really good authenticity though, to the characters, because the relationship is anything but easy. It definitely takes work as they try to figure out how to relate to one another in this this book and, and in the, the beginning of the series as well. You do a really good job, though, of writing all of these different relationships and dynamics. So another relationship that's obviously a large part of the book is the relationship between the two brothers. So you have King Harrison and Prince Coric. Their relationship seems very strong, but it's not without its flaws. And I'm interested to know what drew you to writing that sibling dynamic. Um, and does that royal element that they're sort of navigating with add a layer to their sibling relationship that's maybe unlike normal sibling dynamics? I, you know, I love writing siblings. Um you know, I'm well past the 10th book of my, you know, writing career. Um, my very first series was about um, these four elemental brothers. Um, I love, I just, I think siblings are just, are fascinating because families are just, you know, you talk about humans being messy in general, families are so messy. And um, it was really important to me 
because um, my other fantasy series, the Curse Breaker series, you know, I have brothers who are at odds um, and sisters who are a bit at odds. And in this one, I wanted to write brothers who are very, very close. So putting two brothers on the page who are close and introducing conflict, because, you know, without conflict, there's no story. It's just boring. Um, having brothers who are close and introducing conflict was a new challenge for me. And that was that was a lot of fun. You know, Cork doesn't doesn't want the throne. He doesn't he doesn't want to be in conflict with Harrison. Um, and, you know, and he wants to support Harrison. So putting that conflict in finding it in different ways was was a challenge. And it was a lot of fun. It was great. And they, I think they're very true to a lot of sibling dynamics. You know, they were both raised in the same environment, but they weren't necessarily treated the same. Um, And so you can see where they handle things in a similar fashion or where they very easily communicate with one another. And then where they also hold things back and kind of keep things close to the vest. I loved the dynamic between the two of them because there were a lot of really nice moments where they were like, okay, are we talking as brothers or are we talking as king and like the king's justice? Like what's the motivation here? And sometimes it was one or the other and sometimes it was both. And that was just really fascinating to see the different layers to their relationship. With that, I'm wondering which point of view was the most fun to write from in this book, because you do have uh, some alternating uh, points of view in Defend the Dawn, as well as Defy the Night. So in in Defy, it's just um, Prince Korik and Tessa. And then in Defend the Dawn, I have Tessa and Korik, but I also have the outlaw, um, who is a secret character that's revealed later. Um, And I have to say, you know, I love... I love writing from both Corrick and Tessa's points of view. Um, that's a tremendous amount of fun. Um, and I can't, I can never decide. Like, I don't, I don't like either one any more than the other. Cause they're just, both of them are a lot of fun to write. Um, I did like writing from the point of view of the outlaw, just because it was new and different in this series um, and trying to figure out how to write it in a way that wouldn't be immediately apparent to the readers who it was, um, you know, just a little extra challenge for me. Yeah, I love that a little bit of added mystery to the uh, points of view. I had my guesses uh, throughout, but it did take a, it did take a while to put those pieces together. Did you? Um, <clears throat> excuse me. So the political intrigue in Defend the Dawn is really layered and sort of a big focus for this book. Just when we sort of think, or maybe getting some tenuous peace on the rebellion and we maybe figure things out. Um, we haven't necessarily. So what made you want to write about all that court politicking that sort of happens in Candala? In my opinion, nobody seems trustworthy. <laughs> and no one really is trustworthy. And it's, you know, it's funny. I don't even really know how it happened. Um, because I'm not really a court politics kind of girl. Um, so it shocks me sometimes that I wrote a book that ended up being so heavy on the on the court politics. Um, but I I really do enjoy like all the all the bickering among the consoles and trying to figure out who can trust who um, or who can trust whom. And 
you know, this, this is one of the first books, you know, I'm not a heavy detailed outliner in advance of writing my books. You know, I like to try to be creative on the page with a very loose outline. Um, but with Defy the Night and Defend the Dawn, I did, I had to kind of map out what was going to happen because I have so many sectors and so many consoles and so many characters to keep track of. Um, and maybe that's why I was able to get a little bit more um, into the court intrigue because I did have a little bit more structure going in. And that's a great reminder because there are so many different sectors and areas of Candala and of the kingdom that you have to remember and like keep at the back of your mind that each area has its own motivations and its own leadership. And there are things at play there, which I thought was really well done. It definitely kept me on my toes the entire book where I'm just trying to figure out like what's happening, who can I trust? What are the motivations? Speaking of characters that uh, we don't know what to make of, I'm wondering what the inspiration was for the character of Ryan Blakemore. Um, I needed to give Corrick, um I don't want to say an enemy, you know, because Lachlan isn't really his enemy. Um, and I don't, this really, no one's really a villain because everyone in the Defy the Night series thinks they are doing the right thing, right? Mm -hmm. Really. Um, even if they're completely misguided, like even Alessander mm -hmm. thinks he's doing the right thing for himself. Um, yeah, I really, I really needed almost a foil for Coric, like someone to really challenge Coric and Tessa um, in their opinions of who is doing the right thing. Um, and it's funny, I, I like how Ryan turned out, and it's funny to see reader opinions to Ryan, um, whether or not they like him at the end of the book, or whether they hate him at the end of the book, or where you know, how they feel about him in general. What did you, did you finish the book? What did you think of him? I did. I'm very intrigued by him. He added a nice amount of drama to Tessa and Corrick's relationship for me that I am very intrigued to see hopefully some more of Ryan Blakemore. I you definitely will. <laughs> I'm glad to hear it. But I did finish the book and it suddenly went into acknowledgements and I was, I had to do a double take and I was like, wait, I'm sorry. I was like, wait, I had to reread. I'm like, D and then I was like scanning through my digital arc. I'm like, wait, did I miss a page? And I was like, no, that's where it ends. I it like was not comprehending in my brain that that was where we were leaving it at. So <laughs> I immediately was like, is there another book? There must be, we got to find out what happens. I'm so sorry. <laughs> I mean, I, I love it. I love it. I'll take it. Um, but it, it, it's, I don't want to say it's rare, but it was very fun to finish a book and have to do a double take and just be like, wait, what am I, is my brain working? Is this, what? <laughs> but it, it was, it was wonderful. I really enjoyed it. Yay. Thanks. So speaking of interesting characters, you just mentioned Lachlan. I find him absolutely fascinating as a character because I can't really get a read on him. He's at times really like aggressive and he's kind of a jerk. And then other times he's very kind and you can see, you know, that he's, he truly believes he's doing all that he can for his people. Is that a fun character to write? He has some funny lines throughout this book as well. 
Oh, he is. He is so fun to write. He really is fun to write. Um, yeah. And I just, again, I, I love exploring these characters with these shades of gray and it, it really does boil down to like, whose, whose eyes are you looking through, you know, when you, when you perceive someone, um, and I, I just, I, I love it. I love exploring that in, in books and in fiction. And I think that's why all of my books are um, in, you know, either dual POV or multiple POV, just because then you really can show someone from, from different sides. And Lachlan is, you know, again, just like everyone else, he thinks he's doing the right thing. Um, and maybe he's not going about it in the right way all the time, but he's going to get there. He's great. And I love him as well in the context of his relationship to Carrie, who was obviously a friend to Tessa at the shop that they worked at prior to sort of the adventures that all of this happened, where you kind of see the balance of them. You know, Lachlan is very driven. He wants to make things better for his, you know, the people around him. And I do think Carrie adds a nice sort of layer of softness to him. Uh, where he maybe gets a little bit like gung-ho to do things. She kind of helps bring him back to, you know, bring him back to earth a little bit. And so I love that juxtaposition between both of those characters. And you can see how they influence each other as well. Does Monday at the office feel like a storm? Not with Microsoft Copilot. That feeling when Copilot gets everyone up to speed instantly? It's sunny again. When Copilot simplifies complex data so your teams can act, that sun's shining on a beach. And when Copilot uncovers hidden insights, you're on that beach with your people and you find buried treasure. That's Microsoft Copilot. Learn more at Microsoft.com slash AI for all. We are gathered here today to give you permission to plan the wedding that you want. I'm Jessica Bishop. And I'm Sari Wienerman. And we're the hosts of the Bouquet Toss podcast. Today's couples have to juggle so many things, from family expectations to outdated traditions and what's currently trending. So to make it easier, we're going deep to figure out why we do weddings the way that we do, so you can decide what to keep and what to toss from your wedding day plans. You are cordially invited to subscribe to the Bouquet Toss wherever you get your podcasts or at evergreenpodcast.com. By the power vested in us, we pronounce you free to plan your day your way. So this book, um, you started the first one, Defy the Night, back in 2019. It came out uh, last year in 2021. Mm -hmm. So since then, um, what was the process like of writing Defend the Dawn? Defend the Dawn was really, really hard to write. And... I have to, again, sadly, I have to blame a lot of it on the pandemic. Um, I had started drafting it in, I want to say like late summer of 21, because also I'm writing it, I'm, I've been doing two books a year. So I started writing it in like late summer of 21 and I, you know, was kind of gung-ho, it was going to be great. Um because, you know, things seem to be kind of slowing down with the pandemic, people were getting vaccinated, you know, the world was kind of opening back up a little bit. Um, and I had to write it under on a very tight time frame. And then I don't even remember which variant at this time, whether it was Delta or Omicron or which one. Um, 
but it, in the fall of 2021, it's almost like the entire world seemed to shut back down again. And I have three little boys and all of a sudden I felt like I could not catch a break. I would try to get on a schedule with writing and, you know, here I'm getting a call from school. Like, oh, your kids need to be out for 10 days. Oh no, they need to be out for 10 days again. And then again, and then again, oh no, now we're shutting down school for a week. Um, and I remember I got to around um, the winter holidays and I had to send my editor this email. And I remember I was like sobbing as I'm typing this email. And I was like, I'm so sorry. Like, I know my book is late. I don't know what to do. Like, I'm just, I'm doing the best I can. Um, and, you know, my editor is amazing. We've done so many books together. And she was like, we're all in the same boat. We're all trying to get through this, like, just send it to me when you can and we'll get through it and we'll make it happen. Um, and we did, and we did, but really this book was probably the hardest book that I've ever written. I was going to say, cause you had this book, you have this book coming out in September and you just had forging silver into stars come out. Um, yes, so that that's just came out in June. Yeah. A, a lot of writing back to back during what's been a really difficult time to do. It feels like almost anything. We're all just kind of hanging on doing the best we can. So I'm always extra impressed with all the writers that continue to write and crank out books on these deadlines so that we can read them because I know that the circumstances with which you might be writing are, you know, difficult, especially if you have all these other obligations. Do you have in your ideal world, do you have like the perfect place to write? Are there things that you like to do every time, you know, you're writing a book? Do you write daily when possible? Or is it just really different for each book? So, you know, it's, it's been a little different for each book. I, um, I have started going, you know, it's funny. Um, if, if you have writers who listen to this podcast, I talk to a lot of aspiring authors and I always talk to, especially like young mothers, um, who are like, I'm going to wait until my kids get a little bit older and write because it'll be easier once they go to school, whatever. And I say, no, no, it does not get easier. Um, just if you have an idea and you want to write right now, um, because I, it does not get easier. And I would say that the older your kids get, like when they're two, you know, you can put them down for a nap or whatever, and they can't come find you. Um, when they are seven, they can open a door and find you. Um, when they are 12, they can text you things like, you know, mommy, can you tell me what an erection is again? Uh, you know what I mean? Like it's, you know, like, (laughs) I mean, and I want, I want my children to find me and I want to have those conversations. Um, and it just, there is no perfect time. Like when you're a mom, you just have to kind of squeeze it in wherever you can. And it's funny because I will see, sometimes I will see advice columns and it's, it's always, um, it, it is, it is always men who are like, I'm going to quit my job and write a novel and my wife is going to support me. And I don't, I don't want to make this a sexist comment, but it is, it is always, it is always men. And I'm, whereas, you know, every woman I know is like, I'm going to stay up until one o'clock in the morning and work on my book because I have to go to work and pack lunches and send my kids to school and things like that. Um, So there, there is no perfect time. Like right now I'm sitting in the back room of my local indie bookstore and I will sometimes write here. I'll sometimes write in my basement. I usually get up at 4.30 in the morning to write before I drive the kids to camp. Um, Because that way, if somebody calls me because my kids need me or someone needs something, I know I've gotten my words out of the way for the day. 
that was a really long answer. I'm sorry. No, I, that's really impressive, but I think it's true that there's not ever a perfect time to do something. And so if you want to write or you have an idea or anything really that there's always going to be challenges of every sort of age and stage, especially if you're a parent, it's funny that you said, like, you can put your toddler down for a nap. I have a, a son who's almost three and it's been a tricky age, but I do enjoy the nap time and know that that, that will soon end because he can't yet open, knock on wood, he can't yet open the door for things like that. And, um, you know, when that time is over, <laughs> there'll be new challenges with that as well. Yeah, I feel like every age, not to make this about parenting, but I do, I feel like every age has like its amazing things and then it's not so amazing things. And yeah. Yeah. We're just trying to do the best we can with all of that. I'm wondering if you have, um, going back to the story a little bit, I'm wondering if you have a favorite character from this world. I am very partial to Master Quint. I love Master Quint. He, um... I really do love him. I really, you know, if, if we are, if we take like the main characters, because I do love Corrick and Tessa. Um, if we take the main characters out of the equation, I really do love Quint. He's so much fun to write. Um, I loved him from the first instant I put him on the page. I love that, you know, I love that he's a friend to Corrick. Um, I do. He's just, he's so much fun. He's great. And his, his loyalty and his smarts. And I think also he does a really good job of letting people underestimate him. Like he's kind of good at that distraction, Uh, but he's a really fun character. And I always liked all of the interactions that we got with him. There's always something going on and he always seems to be the one in the know. Yes. All of these characters, speaking of, um, you know, all of these characters show all of those different sort of shades of gray, um, nobody is wholly good or wholly bad. I like that you said there's no real villain, particularly just everybody kind of functioning out of what they think is the right thing and the right way to go about that thing. Why is it important to show readers that there are sort of those shades of gray or, you know, to understand that there are different approaches to the same problem? So I think, especially in YA, I think it's really important for teenagers and young adults to know that just human beings have a lot of different layers to them, you know, especially right now, especially right now. So many people just reveal a very limited amount of who they are, whether it's online, whether it's, you know, I mean, really so much of it is online. Um, that it is important to show that there, there are just so many layers that you can peel back and that people hide or that they don't reveal to the world. Um, and I think that's one of the greatest things about books that you really can kind of safely explore some really challenging and dark topics about humanity in a very safe way, you know. That's true. And I know we talked about this a little bit that you can only write the book and what people take away from it or how they experience it is totally on them. But is there anything that you would hope people would take away from Defend the Dawn? I mean, I would hope that it would leave readers feeling not mad at me. No, I'm kidding. Um, (laughs) 
Yeah, I would hope that I, with all of my books, I hope people would feel like they had taken a satisfying journey with my characters and that they had ended the book in a place that feels somewhat hopeful about the future, both for my characters and, you know, for themselves. I love that. I am very excited to see what the future of these characters might be. Yay. So speaking of which, are you allowed to share if there's anything that you're working on now? So right now I am working on the sequel to Forging Silver into Stars. Um, that doesn't have a release date scheduled, um, but I'm working on that one. And I do not have, let's see, I can't reveal the title for the sequel to that. I can't tell you anything definite about a third book um, for Defend the Dawn. And that's, that's all the good news I have to share right now. Okay. We will take it and we'll keep an eye out for any news that may be to come. So pivoting a little bit, I always love to ask authors about their book covers. The covers for this series and all of your books, honestly, are so stunning. I'm wondering how much input you have on the cover art. So for Defy the Night, we um, we went through a couple different cover artists, and I I don't know why I'm showing it to you because this is I a love podcast. to see it. <laughs> and you know the we went back and forth through a couple different renditions, um, and I just um, absolutely love the, the the way my zoom is reversed. No, I absolutely love the the final artwork. Um, I am completely blanking on the name of the artist. I believe it's Sasha Vino de Gradova. Um, and I'm sorry, I don't have it in front of me, um, but it is, she did an absolutely incredible job. Like I love the flowers. I love the, I love the castle coming out of the clouds on Defy the Night. Um, and then I love how we did something similar for Defend the Dawn. You know, on this one, we have the water and the flowers um, and the castle as well, a different castle. Um, and I just, they came together beautifully, you know, and I love that Bloomsbury really, you know, allows me to give input. I mean, I'm not an artist, you know, I just write the words, um, but they do listen. If I'm unhappy with something, they really do listen and try to make it right. Bloomsbury does great covers. I love it. I love these covers for your books. Is it super special to see something else? I know that um, you've done a few of, I actually just ordered my copy yesterday for the fairy loot edition of forging silver into stars or yes, forging silver into stars. I know you've done a couple of special editions or exclusive editions. What is that like to see, um, you know, those versions of your books? It's really incredible. And especially when there's, um, when there's alternate artwork or alternate covers and things like that, it's just, it's really incredible to see other people's interpretations of either my characters or my storylines. Um, it's very surreal. You know, it's not something I ever expected to see, you know, early on in my career. So it's, it's really wonderful. I think it's really cool. And it's really bad for my wallet as somebody that loves collecting (laughs) books, because it feels like there's sort of a renaissance of like book collecting. And so these special editions or these exclusive editions, I know are something that I love to, to tangibly have and like have on my shelf. So I'm excited for my copy of Forging Silver into Stars. Yay. 
Yay. Which I did see sold out in the early access. <laughs> so I'm lucky <laughs> to have gotten one. Oh, I'm glad you were able to. Yay. Um, so I'm wondering just for some fun uh, bits to end on, if there's anything that you're loving lately right now, whether it's something you're reading or watching um, or literally anything that's making your life easier, fun. Um, my husband and I are currently in the middle of watching The Wilds, which is on Amazon. Um, and the first season absolutely blew me away. Um, it's very twisty and fascinating. Um, and I was really sad because I just learned last night that there is not a third season, but I definitely recommend the first two seasons because it is just phenomenal and really fascinating and thought provoking. Um, highly recommend. I love that. I'm always looking for things that I can watch that hopefully my husband will watch with me as well. It's hard to find joint shows. (laughs) Yes. Yes. Um, So you are about to head back on book tour here in a little bit for defend the dawn. Are you excited to be back in front of readers after what's been a couple of wild years? So, uh, yes, I have been, I feel like I've been touring nonstop all summer. Cause I also did mm-hmm. a tour for, um, forging silver and it has been amazing. I love seeing readers. I love meeting with readers. Um, it, it's just, there's nothing, there's nothing that compares to it. I just love seeing people and talking about books and, you know, writers, we write stories, you know, by ourselves and seeing that our books have had an impact on someone. Um, there's truly nothing like it. It's so fun to see authors, you know, in person. I know as a reader, it's, there's just something magical about getting to have that interaction with the person that wrote, you know, these stories that we feel so strongly about. And I'm in a petition for whenever you have your next book tour that you come to Cleveland, (laughs) uh, where Overdrive is based. (laughs) We would love to have you in person. Um, There are a lot of voracious readers here in Northeast Ohio. Um, well, you know, my mom's <laughs> whole extended family's in Cleveland, so I could probably make that happen. Okay. So we're going to petition for that for one of the future books. And um, we have a wonderful library system here as well, too, that we know loves to host um, authors and events. That's so amazing. as we, as we wind down, um, where can our listeners find you on social media or if you have a website? Sure. So my website is just bridgedkemmer.com. Um, and I know my uh, name is, it's the old Irish Bridget. So it's just B-R-I-G-I-D and Kemmerer is K-E-M-M-E-R-E-R. Um, but I am most active on Instagram, a little bit active on Twitter um, and TikTok. Um, and I do have a Facebook readers group that is welcome to all. I am very much a non-exclusive person. I love inviting everyone. Um, yeah. And I'm happy. I do my best to respond to people on social media as much as possible. Wonderful. Thank you so much for uh, speaking with me today. I'm so excited for other readers to be able to check out Defend the Dawn, which is out on September 20th. Um, we, I'm so happy you got to come and chat. I would love to chat with you, honestly, about all of your books. Oh, um, but thank that, you. that might be tiring uh, <laughs> with the rate with which you publish them. <laughs> to have those same conversations, but it was just so exciting to get to chat to you. This is such a fun series. I know that people are going to be really excited to see what Tessa and Cork do next. Yay. Thank you so much. 
readers can sample and borrow the titles mentioned in today's episode on Overdrive.com, and our library friends can purchase these titles in Marketplace. Professional Book Nerds is proud to be an Evergreen Podcast signature program. To learn about other Evergreen Podcasts, visit evergreenpodcast.com. Our podcast is produced, recorded, and edited by Emma Dwyer, Jill Grunewald, and Joe Skelly, and presented by Overdrive. To learn more, visit professionalbooknerds.com. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.